Planning a trip to one of the great national parks? L.L. Bean went to the experts at the National Park Foundation to get the inside scoop on which parks are the best to visit in each season. Whether you're looking for outstanding scenery, smaller crowds, or unique activities, L.L. Bean, be an outsider. To check out the full list of recommendations, visit llbean.com explore. Welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Well, Rod, we're back, and I really feel like this offseason certainly feels like there's a ton of news, a lot of stuff happening. I mean, I feel like... uh, a lot of times the season ends and there's recruiting and you know a couple things happen. But with NIL and the portal, it's really busy. And so we've had a lot more content than I think probably I anticipated us having at this point. But we're just going to keep cranking stuff out. And today we're going to talk about the Big Ten. And we're going to talk about how the Big Ten did for the season, how the teams did versus the previous analysis, and how we did in our predictions. And by we, I mean you. So... <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna grade you today on on how uh, you did for the Big Ten previous. And so I guess let's just start out with the original ranking. So when you looked at the season before we started, you had the rankings, and we'll go from worst to best. So we'll go from 14th to first place. And I always feel like lots of shows they make these predictions, and they never go back to say how well they did. And I think in some ways you look at like the um, the bracket the bracketologist, never. right? Never. The bra- the bracketologists always, you know, this is what did. I think. And then you never really yeah. get an idea. If, you, there's never graded any way of just who's any good. And I think we sort of know now. But but this is, but this is true. But this is true of everything in life. I mean, if you, you know, especially in the modern era where we have social media allowing people in any sphere of life to pontificate on any subject under the sun, um, you know, those who make predictions are very, 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 very rarely held to account for the wrong predictions but if you happen to get a long shot right you can ride on <laughs> that totally for right. years i mean there are guys I, I won't get too deep in it but i mean there are guys who's the guy uh to leave the black oh yeah Swan, the sheep to leave yeah the, the, uh, yeah. the, the concept in the book yeah yeah um that he wrote just prior to the 0708 housing crisis now I, people can feel however they want. He strikes me as a straight up clown, but he happened to kind of get that right by accident or not. You can, you know, your mileage may vary, but he's ridden that into a career ever since. And there, are, and, and in the field of economics and especially the stock market, um, it's just rife with those guys who called like, you know, 25 right. of the last three recessions. <laughs> but if they get one right, they're a genius, for at least for a time, until they start missing predi- enough predictions going forward that people stop paying attention. In the world of sport, you're absolutely right. Nobody ever does. So yeah, what past, we're about to past do. performance does not predict future so, uh, results. So no, uh, sure we're doesn't. going to talk about, like I said, the Big Ten, and we're going to go back, starting with the predictions for the Big Ten. So we have number fourteen Minnesota, thirteen Penn State, twelve Nebraska, eleven Iowa, tenth. 
Northwestern, 9th, Wisconsin, 8th, Rutgers, 7th, Indiana, 6th, Maryland, 5th, Michigan State, 4th, Ohio State, 3rd, Illinois, 2nd, University of Michigan, and 1st, Purdue. Do you agree that that's what you had predicted? Does that sound right? All right, good. That is, that is what I had. And I, <laughs> and I can say just looking at this thing, um, I would say the two that I missed on horribly in terms of underrating them were Wisconsin and Iowa. And the two that I overrated um, were Michigan and Maryland. And, and then everything else is kind of in a realm of reasonability in terms of where I had them picked versus where they finished. But those were the four schools that I had in, in opposite directions had entirely wrong. Wisconsin and Iowa really dramatically. I mean, we're talking about I had them ninth and 11th. Right. They finished first and fourth. And, and so I, I developed this. I developed a scoring system that I, because, uh, so this way we can compare year okay. to year. So we'll see. So you can follow and to see if you need to start, you know, honing up a little bit more before the season starts and kind of get better. And it's hard, of course, because it's an unbalanced schedule for the big 10, right? Not every team plays everyone twice. And so it is in, right. you know, it's, it's imperfect no matter how we do it, because you can, you can say, well, this is the best team, but they may right. have an unbalanced they, and, schedule that's easier or harder. And, and so it's harder sometimes to know what's, what the, the, up, where the results are. Right. Absolutely. And, and again, case in point, you know, I can look at this thing at the start of the season and say, well, you know, drawing Iowa twice, no big deal, <laughs> but in actuality, that may have been a very big deal. In, the, in terms of the way the schedule worked out. So you're right. It has an impact in that way. I, I can just tell you that generally speaking, with, with very few exceptions over the years, when I do these things, and I've done them, God, either in written or podcast form for the last 20-some years in one form or another, um, I usually just simply, I'm evaluating what I think of the actual quality of the team absent scheduling impact. The one year I can definitely remember letting scheduling uh, enter my thoughts was in um, 2005, where I believe Michigan State um, had a disadvantage. There was one year in there, maybe it wasn't 05, but there was definitely a year where Michigan State had a disadvantage vis-a-vis um, -vis Wisconsin, and it entered my thinking. But, but generally speaking, because it's too it's too difficult for the reason you suggested, and even more so since we've yeah. gone to a fourteen team league. I mean, yeah, they've added two more games, but we've still got uh, just a a very very unbalanced approach to this thing. So, yeah, that right. that's that's my that's, out card. Well, so, uh, in order to sort of determine what the actual final rankings are, we can go by the actual uh, ratings, where you know there are two teams who tied for first, one team ended third, and it's so on. But the easier way to do it which is pretty close. I just use the eventual ratings with all the tiebreakers in place for the big 10 tournament seating. So one through 14, nothing's perfect, but it's not perfect. But we're going to hold you accountable for that. So here we go. Uh, when, it, when you look at it, uh, Minnesota, you're dead on correct. They were in last place. And so I just awarded a point for every spot that you missed. Didn't they, didn't they lose the, or didn't they win the tiebreaker with Nebraska? They were though? the 14th seed. Nebraska oh, went on that okay. blistering uh, right. hot streak at the very end of the season, yeah. right? So well, I knew they tied. Yeah, so it ended up being okay. Great, I got that one right. Yeah, right. You got you nailed that one. <laughs> and um, 
And so I just awarded points based on how far off you were. For instance, you would predict Iowa at 11th and they actually ended up fifth. So you got six points. So like golf, you want a low score. You end up with 43 points and you're, uh, which I thought was actually pretty good. And when you look at the, the scoring, the ones you missed that you had the one perfect with, you had Minnesota, you had what I would say right. near misses where you're only off by one or two on a lot a of lot. teams. So Nebraska, yeah. you only miss yep. uh, Nebraska, Northwestern, Indiana, yep. Michigan state, Ohio state, Illinois, and Purdue. You're only off by one or two. So that's pretty much a good perfect right. prediction. I think, you know, that's what I meant when I, when I look back at yeah. this thing, I, I don't feel, I don't feel that bad other than I think missing, missing on Wisconsin was obviously when, when they win the league and you have them ninth that, but I also can take solace in the fact that I was far from alone no, in that. Right. Yeah, I don't absolutely. think anybody had Wisconsin, you know, finishing. I don't think there. so either. And, and the two, the, you had three big misses and that would be, as you mentioned, Wisconsin and Iowa, the obvious ones. And then Michigan, you had Michigan, you, you predict them to be second and some are arguing yeah. first, they were top 10, I think. And they ended up in eighth. So they were off by six Maryland right. and Rutgers would be the other two that were, you were off four. So those were closer and Penn State was three. You're three off in Penn State. But again, you know, sort of bottom feeders, it, it's, you know, I don't think it makes much difference down there. Yeah. And again, though, the Penn State thing that, that you're right, really, if you've got to do it that way, the only way you can do it is is by utilizing the tiebreakers. But the fact of the matter is I had Penn State 13th and they were tied for being the third worst team in the league, depending upon how you look. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so again, I don't feel too badly about that. I, I think the four teams I highlighted, uh, Wisconsin and Iowa, obviously way outperforming what I had predicted and Michigan and Maryland way underperforming where I had predicted were the four that I kind of identified at a glance as where I was way off. The others are in a range that I don't feel badly. About. Right. And, and the other bigger one is Rutgers, which I think, you know, when you look at the final rankings, it's not, it's a difference of like one win, I think between, between fourth and eighth place or something. It was not really, yeah. it was not really, but, but again, they tied, weren't, weren't they in, they were, they ended up with the fourth seed, so they were, but they tied, I think they were, they were and they Ohio could State. have been sixth. Yeah. They could have been sixth, which was only two off. Now, again, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this in the most advantageous <laughs> way possible to me in each instance. Classic lawyer move. Yeah. But, <laughs> right. But, um, I could make that argument. Well, I was really only two off. Um, and, and, and honestly, and I will say this to, to buttress my argument one step further. I honestly think if you looked at Iowa, Ohio State, and Rutgers, those three teams in a vacuum, how would you rank them in terms of which was the best to the worst? I think most people would gravitate toward Rutgers being the worst of those three. Yeah. Regardless of and the reasonable minds can differ, but that's just what my gut tells me. You know, people got very enamored of Iowa late in the season because of how how well their offense was clicking. Ohio State was inconsistent, but they had star power with Liddell and Branham, and that was enough to carry them in certain games. And Rutgers was kind of what Rutgers has been under Steve Peichel. So they don't really excite a lot of people. Um, but anyway, um, like I say, I, I don't feel too badly about this other than really missing badly at the top. But I, but I got a lot of company. So I think, you know, most of the teams aren't too very interesting. To, we've already talked, we've already recapped Michigan State season, so I don't think there's much to go into that. Uh, but, and many of the teams, I think they sort of turn out to be the teams we thought they're going to be. But let's talk about some of them. Let's uh, let's start with the ones that you missed on. So let's talk about Wisconsin first. 
I mean, was it was this just a product of Johnny Davis just being a player that you, no one really anticipated moving up, becoming like a superstar? Largely, yes. I mean, I'll go back to what I said about Johnny Davis. So I said in the preseason, he had a nice freshman season, followed up with a strong summer playing for the U.S. 19 under world championship team. He averaged seven points at 4.1 boards on 44, 39, 73 shooting as a freshman. Expect to see his numbers take off considerably. Doubling his scoring wouldn't be any kind of surprise. Well, I probably <laughs> should have said tripling and then some, but yeah. you see, I, I wasn't surprised by the fact that he was a lot more impactful. But if you had told me, hey, this guy's going to be in the National Player of the Year conversation, that would have changed the way I viewed Wisconsin for sure. Yeah. Because they needed that, you know, th that team lost so much firepower. And when you looked at the rest of the club that they had, um, not really much star power. I mean, Brad Davison had a nice year, um, better in terms of the counting stats than he'd had the last couple, but he was largely the player he'd always been. You know, yeah. I don't think there was a dramatic uptick either way from Davison. He would have the occasional game where he got hot from three, um, but then he would have other games where he wasn't hitting and his his impact was a little more muted. Uh, you know, here here's what I said about Tyler Wall. That would be the other guy that maybe I missed on a little bit. I said, uh, you know, started 18 times as a sophomore, had a decent year. The question with Wall is if he's capable of stepping up into a bigger role. He can definitely be a hustle glue guy, but can he do more? Wisconsin may need to find out. Yeah. That's what I said about him in the preseason. Well, they did find out. And what they found out is I'm not ready to declare Tyler Wall a star, but he was a, a guy who could be a solid number three option on a Big Ten title team because that's exactly what he was offensively. And, and I think as the year went on, he really proved, maybe surprisingly to me, to be a very, very, very effective low post player. Um, he, he definitely fit the Wisconsin mold in, in that area of the game. I think the, the key for him, and Wisconsin needs him to go up another level next year, which we have plenty of time to talk about, but the main weakness there, and it was the main weakness this season, is his inability to hit the three. If he could do that, if he could find a jumper, then he becomes a really, really nice player. That, all that said, he was better than I had expected him to be, but at least I identified the question correctly. Yeah. That they would probably need him to, uh, to be that, to be a better player. And after those three guys, it was really a cast of young players just kind of fitting in. You know, Stephen Crawl, um, I mentioned he was seen as a guy with potential to stretch defenses and also compete inside due to his size. Well, that's what he did. Um, you know, Ben Carlson was another guy I mentioned as being in their mix. Um, and then looking at their newcomers, um, you know, uh, the big one was Chucky Hepburn. Uh, I had mentioned that he would get every opportunity to win a starting job at the point. He did that. He's considered a strong two-way player and needs to develop more consistency with his shot. But the bigger thing for him is to see if he can handle running an offense immediately. Well, he actually did develop more consistency with his shot as the year went along. He didn't put up huge numbers, but when you look at the way he was playing, especially late, he was an important guy for them. So, yeah, I, I think when you view it in totality, it's a little bit of wall stepping up, but 
the vast, vast, vast majority of this was around Johnny Davis going from being a guy that I thought maybe could be a second or third team all Big Ten guy to a national player of the year candidate. That's a big difference. Yeah. And that's why. Sure. That 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 and I would say the other thing is some of the teams I had ahead of them proved to be more flawed than I expected. I, I can say this and we'll get into Purdue, I'm sure, but I never in a million years would have called Purdue being as bad defensively as they were. If I had known that, well, it would have been clear, okay, there's an opportunity for somebody to come in here and win this thing. And that's what happened. But I didn't see that coming in October. I don't think many people did. I, I thought Purdue, to be candid, I thought Purdue was going to run away with it. I know people. a lot of people had Michigan picked first. I never understood that. I thought that was crazy. To me, Purdue was hands down the heavy favorite coming into the season. And for a while they played like it, but you know, their defense just prevented them from winning the league and, and Wisconsin uh, steady as they go. No frills team with a superstar was just good enough to get it done. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, definitely the Rutgers game was a wake up call for the rest of the big 10 that this was a, this, the entire conference is in play. And for Wisconsin, Brad Davison was the usual cheap shot. Brad Davison, he has always been. We are all excited to see him graduate, especially no one more so than my wife, who can't stand him, that guy. Uh, and yeah. and um, you know what's interesting about him, though, just while we're on him for a second, <laughs> I've noticed. I don't think you know it's without question. He's over the last several years, he's been the the single biggest villain in the Big Ten. There, there's no debating that. Opposing fan bases hate him. Um, you know, I think if you polled Big Ten fans at, as a whole, he'd easily be the least liked player from opposing teams. I mean, he'd win it and run away. But Michigan State, I don't maybe I'm missing one, but I don't ever remember there being an incident with him. And honestly, Izzo and their team, Michigan State's team, always seemed to have a good deal of respect for him. I, I paid attention to it the game where MSU beat them in the Big Ten tournament. And it was it looked sincere to me, the embraces between guys like Gabe Brown and Davison, guys who had gone at each other for several years. That for whatever reason, Michigan State never seemed to get into one of those controversial moments with him. I, I happen to ascribe that to blind luck yeah. more than anything yeah, else. I, think I don't so. think Davison decided, well, I'm not going to cheap shot these guys. But it just – happened to play out that way. And Izzo loved him from the get-go because he was a football player. And, you know, he's one of those guys. And I don't, I would never compare these players on any level, just except for fan vitriol. But, um, you know, the way that Michigan State fans absolutely loved Scott Skiles and everybody else hated him. Now, the difference is Scott Skiles was a real deal superstar basketball player. Brad Davison wasn't. And Scott Skiles never cheap shot at anybody. No, right, yeah. But my point is, he's a guy that you do, maybe the better comparison is with the bad boy Pistons, for those of our listeners who are old enough to remember that. You know, Bill Lambeer, I still maintain, Bill Lambeer is the most underrated player in NBA history. But if you try to peddle that, and, and I can back it up with statistics, with rings, everything. I think it's a case-closed argument that he should be in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Because he's one of the greatest rebounders statistically in NBA history. He was ahead of his time as a shooter, as a big man, and he won two championships as arguably the second best player on those teams, second most important. Um, 
if I try to peddle that argument anywhere outside of the state of Michigan, I get no traction right, at yeah. all, you know? So because of the cheap shot stuff. Yeah. I remember there are at least two occasions like last season where Brad Davison, uh, as he's go- going around a screen set by Connor McCaffrey, and this is one he got suspended or just gave him a you know big punch and there's, you know, not an accidental thing. And then he had a really one of those ridiculous uh, flops and a three point shot and stuff to get against Iowa in this season. So he has, that, that, he that gets, may be a, that may be a Wisconsin, Iowa thing too, because it, it might have, be, I don't know. Yeah. You know, they have a right, they have a rivalry of sorts that, you know, Michigan state and Wisconsin, yeah. well, they've had a, they've been two of the best programs in the country over the last 20 years, but it, it doesn't have that same feeling I would imagine. But I also anyway. felt like I, uh, Wisconsin in some ways is like a baseball team that has a very low, like, or maybe a negative run margin where you can say they just happen to get lucky. You know, they have, oh, and, and I think, I think Wisconsin had a number point. of games that they won by a couple points and you could argue, well, that's, they just close out games where they've got a guy like Johnny Davis, but some ways you're like, you know, when you just win all your games by three or four points and some of that's the next season, you may lose four of those games. And now you're, you know, middle of the pack of the big 10, right? You you make it you make a great point, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's it's an incomplete discussion without mentioning that. Um, the, a good comparison is last year in Major League Baseball, the Seattle Mariners were right on the edge of being a playoff team, despite the fact that they had a negative run differential. Um, that doesn't happen very often, but you would you would say, well, that's the definition of luck, right? Um, I had this discussion with Jack Ebling on his radio show late in the season because it, it seemed to, I was on Jack's show a lot last year and it, it seemed to be almost every episode we'd come back around to the fact that I, I, I said to him, if Wisconsin win the last, at the end of the season, I said, if Wisconsin wins this thing outright, it's going to force me to reevaluate everything I thought I knew about basketball because I just, they did not stack up as a big 10 championship team. Now, if you look at the Vic, the margins of victory, you find exactly what you were just talking about. Wisconsin was uncanny in close games. Now, Jack happened to mention that it was Judd Heathcote's opinion that teams that win close games don't do so strictly by luck. If they do it regularly, you have to assume that there is something about their mentality, their maturity, whatever, that gets them across the line. Those who embrace what has come in the wake of Judd Heathcote's era, a a much more analytical, statistically-based analysis of the game would say that's hogwash, you know, and would lean toward a luck explanation above everything else. Um, we can never prove it either way. I tend to go more with the new school on this one because I look at that Wisconsin team and I, and I said this to Jack at the time, all due respect to Tyler wall because he's emerged into a nice player, but is Tyler wall, the kind of guy you think of as a third option on a big 10 championship team. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I really don't again, no offense to him, but come on. And yet, that's what he was, right. a co-champion at least, right? So I, uh, I, I tend to go that way, but it's, a, it's an interesting discussion. Um, I guess the one thing you could say in Wisconsin's favor is, you know, any team that plays 
a slower paced game, which Wisconsin traditionally does, is going to tend to find themselves in closer games, I think, in general, in general, uh, because you have fewer possessions. You know, there's that old saw about, oh, you're playing this team, every possession counts more. But there, there's at least a wee bit of truth to that, I think. And so if, if you're Wisconsin, you're not always in games, no matter how good you are, where you're up by 20 points. You know, it's also the old cliche about, well, a six-point margin against Wisconsin, you know, for Wisconsin against you feels like 20. Right, yeah. Because they'll just squeeze the life out of every possession. But there is a little bit of truth to that. So you could maybe make the argument, hey, they don't get rattled by playing by looking up at the scoreboard and two minutes left and they're only up four. Because to them, that's kind of standard operating procedure. You could make that argument. I'm not saying I find it compelling in the end, but you could make it. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's why in baseball, you say, well, you play 162 games. And by the time you get to the end, you've the statistical anomalies, you pretty much removed all of them. But to your point, last year was that sometimes even that it can, every once in a while, what happened? Sure. Yeah. That's, that's, but, you know. They, they got close to getting in. They didn't actually right, get in. Right. So we can say it held, barely. So then I think we have a similar story in Iowa, not one that became Big Ten champions. However, they also had a player merge who, um, certainly watching last season, I thought this is a guy who might be kind of special, but there were so many scores around, you know, Garza and, and Wieskamp and, and uh, Frederick. So you didn't think there was really opportunity for him to do much, but he seemed to be active defensively. And so that's Keegan Murray, obviously. And, and not even to his lesser extent, you never expected anything from Chris Murray because when he did see the court, he was pretty useless. He didn't, he wasn't able to do anything. And even beginning of the season, the first couple games, he didn't look much like, like much. And then he emerged. And so you suddenly had what looked like a team that was depleted, suddenly a team that had a lot of parts that were, um, that were, that could hurt you. Even a bigger surprise to me than Wisconsin, because I, I did think Wisconsin. I mean, I want to go back just to see what I said about Wisconsin. It was br- yeah, the Iowa, what you said um, about Iowa was brutal. <laughs> yeah, I had said about Wisconsin just to put it in context. Um, they'll be tough to play at Cole, but I'm not sure there's enough here to earn a first division league finish, and that alone would make Selection Sunday nerve wracking. I said a tournament bid would make for a successful season. I'm not sure they have enough in a league this deep to make that happen, though. Um, so it wasn't a reigning endorsement by any stretch. But, you know, I, uh, I, I wasn't ruling out the, the possibility they could be a tournament team. Iowa, on the other hand, I had said it's largely back to the have-not life for Fran and his program. The truth is that Iowa has been a pretty consistent NCAA tournament-level program for the past six, seven years but I have a hard time seeing this group accomplish that much in 22. Murray seems as if he's set to blossom into a star. So got that. I'll tell you, and we'll talk about him in a little more detail in a second, what I said about him, but there just isn't enough around him. Bohannon will hit a ton of threes, but I wonder how efficient he'll be given the role he'll have to play as a volume shooter. The McCaffrey's have proven to be solid rotation guys, but not more than that just yet. And then you have questions defensively up and down the roster. I think this season we'll see a big step backward in Iowa City. And the reality is it clearly was a step backward, but not that much. Not a big one, no. You know, I mean, look, last year, even though I never bought in, they were they were trumpeted as a Big Ten title contender and a Final Four contender. 
Now, in the end, they didn't win the Big Ten. They didn't come close to getting into the Final Four. Um, but I think that when you look at what this team actually did, finishing where they did in the conference, you'd have to say the gap wasn't that large between last season and this past season, or two years ago and last year now. Um, and and it's, it's interesting. I think with this team, I do think, obviously, a ton of it is Keegan Murray. Now, what I had said about him, I had said he was a revelation as a freshman because nobody thought anything about him as a recruit, came in, and on a, a good and experienced team, he elbowed his way into minutes, and he averaged seven points and 5.1 boards a game, even managing to start four games as a freshman. So that was a heck of an accomplishment. It told you that he was set to become a significant player. Once again, I said, if he can improve his shooting consistency from deep, he could easily double his scoring output, given the number of shots he's likely to get. Well, again, I should have said triple to quadruple, and I would have been closer <laughs> to the truth. But at least it wasn't. I, I thought he was going to be a significant guy and probably their best player. Again, didn't see him as a national player of the year contender. And that's the primary difference. But I do think um, some other guys developing were important for them. Patrick McCaffrey, yeah, you know, and I had mentioned, said, you know, he was finally healthy the year before, had a nice year as a reserve. I said, they think he can go up another level as an offensive player, and I'd expect him to be a starter this year. Well, he was both of those things. He was a starter. He was a double-digit scorer, if I remember correctly. I don't have their, their stats in front of me, but I'm pretty sure that was the case. Um, and uh, and he definitely proved to be a reliable guy. So that was a difference maker. Um, I think that a guy like Tony Perkins yes, yeah. really, really turned it on. Um, another guy who was a freshman earned a role, not a huge one, but earned a role, was vastly, you know, Vastly, vastly underrated as a recruit. Nobody cared about Tony Perkins. And then this year, he was starting toward the end of the year, wasn't he? That, that was actually probably the reason lineup. that they were doing so much better because he replaced Joe Toussaint at the, yeah. at the, at the point position because Joe is very limited. You know, he can't score real easily. He's, right. he's prone to mistakes. He, he will have great plays and then not so great place. And that's kind of been the up and down sort of nature yeah. of him. And so putting Perkins on the point or having Bo Hannon play the point where he seemed more comfortable getting his shot, it, th their offense just worked better. Yeah. And I think defensively Perkins was better too than, um, I, than I did mention that I said, I did say his earning a significant role could help Iowa's defense as he's pretty clearly one of the better individual defenders on this team already. Yeah. So I had that bit right, but yeah, his, his elevation as a player was a big deal too, for sure. One I missed on, I said about Chris Murray, the 6'8 twin of Keegan, he played sparingly as a freshman and seems unlikely to see his role dramatically increase this season. Well, that was dead wrong. He was a very key reserve for them and had some, had a couple of really strong individual scoring games. Um, and I think actually going forward, I'm not going to be surprised. I don't think he's going to be what his brother was this year, but I think he's going to be a pretty good player next year for Iowa. Yeah, I, th I think and there's a, a very good chance one. that Chris Murray is, although they're twins and born only minutes apart, I think he's about a year behind Keegan Murray. And I, I, I don't. Yeah, I, that would that would be the trajectory. And I don't. I, yeah. I agree with you. I don't think he'll be as prolific as Keegan was. But I mean, in some ways, his, you know, what would have been freshman year for Keegan 
was about as a he was more effective than Keegan was as a but with obviously yeah. more opportunities right because a team that that needed more and so he was able to provide more yeah the the other guy um that uh that I, I kind of ID'd but not entirely was Sanford yes who gave them some really nice shooting especially as the year went on I mentioned he had been a big time shooter in high school. And that would be a way in which he could earn minutes this season. It appears he needs to add strength, though, which might be a limiter as to how much he can do as a freshman. Well, as it turned out, you know, I should have realized Fran is always going to default to playing a guy who can hit shots. Yeah. And Sanford could hit shots. And, and so, consequently, Iowa was much, much, much better than anybody saw coming. And, um, I mean, you look at what they lost from that team – the year prior, Garza, Wieskamp, Frederick, uh, Nunji. I, I, it was just, it was a massive, massive loss of personnel. And I would have to say that last season represents by far the best coaching job Fran McCaffrey has done in his Iowa run, at least. I can't speak to um, the years prior because they never had a season like this where Nobody saw them coming, and they were so competitive at the top of the Big Ten standings. They weren't really ever a threat for the Big Ten title, but to finish where they did was really, really remarkable. Now, in the end, you know, the tournament, kind of what it always is for Iowa. Um, and, and I think that what this year did not do is it did not change my mind ultimately of what about what Fran McCaffrey's program is and will be. Yeah, right. Unless – he gets religion the way John Beeline did at a certain point and decides to outsource his defense to somebody else who actually cares about it or could coach it. This is kind of the ceiling. You can have a fun year. You can, you know, if he's got a really, really dialed in team offensively, he can compete for the upper tier of the league, but he didn't win in anything. Yeah. And this year is proof of that, you know, you don't have to be an all-time great defensive team. Wisconsin wasn't. But you better at least be solid there. And, and when you look at Iowa, and especially more so Purdue, if you can't go out and guard anybody, it is really hard to win a Big Ten championship. It just is. And it's, and it's hard to get to a Final Four, too. Really hard. Yeah, and well, and You let's, can't do those things. So, And then like, we just transition straight to Purdue, because I think that was one. Not that you're missed, but let's just talk about some of the, the teams at the top, because Purdue look like, like you mentioned, they look like world beaters at the beginning of the beginning of the season, and then, then Ron Harper hits that what was it like a half court shot or somewhere to beat them at, yep. at Rutgers, yep. and uh, it it wasn't like the wheels fell off, but it I think they just look vulnerable, right? I think you suddenly realized maybe more of who they really were, that they had they were so prolific at scoring in the first half of in the non conference part of the season that you did you maybe didn't notice the, some of the problems they've been having. Well, uh, yeah, and and it, it was something that I actually came to realize as we got deeper into December, because initially, when you see a team vastly underperforming what expectations had in an area the way they were, defense, you know, the inclination is to say, okay, limited sample size, they'll get it figured out. And, and I said all along, that the only difference between why people had been, and I don't mean just me, I mean people in general in college basketball, why people were so skeptical of Iowa the year prior 
and Purdue this year still had people in March claiming they were they had a Final Four run in them. Um, the only difference, well, two differences: one, the name on the front of the jersey, and two, the name of the coach, because people had expected that come to expect. Well, Matt Painter is a Purdue guy, and Purdue is always a strong defensive team, um, you know, and and yet uh, it just didn't happen this year. They never they never figured it out. Now, you know, they did get to the Sweet Sixteen before St. Peter's derailed them the same way they derailed Kentucky uh, and got Shaheen Holloway hired at Seton Hall. Um, but I think that still ranks as a disappointment. This was the year for Purdue. This was the year where Matt Painter had everything going. And I think anything short of a Final Four and a Big Ten championship had to be rated as a disappointment. And so, you know, not winning the Big Ten and not getting to a Final Four, only getting to a Sweet 16 and losing to a team like St. Peter's on top of that that has to rank as, as a huge, huge disappointment. Now, I, I want to draw your attention with the, we use, we reference in virtually every episode we do, we talk about Ken Pomeroy's system because it's, I think it's the best overall snapshot tool we have um, or set of tools rather. Defensively with almost the same team. I mean, the only guy from the year prior they lost who was any kind of playing time factor was Aaron Wheeler. And, Aaron Wheeler was not a difference maker. I can assure you of that. In, in, in 2021, Purdue was the 34th ranked team in defensive efficiency. Pretty good. And pretty much in keeping with what Purdue's been. When I look back years prior, the year prior to that, 11th, 34th, 31st, 23rd, 11th. You got to go back to the 2014-15 season to find a year where Purdue wasn't in the top 40 defensively. So there has been consistency with Matt Painter's program on the defensive end. And these players had done it. Yeah, right, the same players, They'd yeah. all been part of a team. Right. Same guys. They were 93rd this season. 93rd. And for the life of me, I cannot understand how it happened. When I, when I look at that team, I yeah, they have some guys who are not world-beating individual defenders. They're big men struggle away from the rim, which can cause problems. You know, when you can't extend out, Michigan State fans know this, Tyson Walker getting Trevion Williams on a switch right in that game and just using his quickness and his handle to create enough space to get an open three, which he hit to win the game. Um, but those guys were the big men the year before. So what was the difference? Um, their perimeter guy, you know, I, I will say this, it's possible that and I love Jaden Ivey. I love Jaden Ivey's potential. But um, Jaden Ivey is an, was, this season at least, an inconsistent defender at best. And he has no excuse for it because he's athletically as gifted as the day is long. He is a solidly built guy at 6'4", should have been. I would look at his physical tools and say, that's a guy who could be a lockdown defender, not just a good one. Right. And he was bad individually. You could maybe argue that, well, he played a bigger role on this team than he did as a freshman, and that's true, and maybe that had something to do with it. But 
it doesn't explain a, a near 60 place ranking differential from one year to the next one guy, I don't think makes that argument. So that was it. I mean, Purdue had the number two offense in the country behind Gonzaga. They were the only, they were exactly what I expected them to be offensively. They were elite. There was for the only time in Matt Painter's entire run, they could beat you in every phase of the game. Matt Painter has had teams that had dominant post players, as this one did. This one had two of them. Matt Painter has had teams that shot the three extremely well, as this team did. But what this team had that his others never did is in Jade and Ivy, they had a one-man transition game. Right. And that's just not typical Purdue basketball. So they could beat you any way you wanted to play. They had everything covered. And, and yet, if you can't guard people, there is going to be a ceiling, I believe, and not just with Purdue. I think it's relative to anybody. There's going to be a ceiling on how good you can be, and I think Purdue discovered that. Um, and, and so if I was a Purdue fan, I'd be very, very disappointed because I don't know how often this is going to come around where you have that much depth, you have a true superstar in Ivy, um, and, and you have as much experience as they had. All those elements coming together, that is hard to do. And yet they didn't get the job done. And I think that's going to haunt them. Now watch them with a diminished roster go out and right. get to a Final Four next year just to spite me. But I, I think they'll still be good next year, but they're not going to have this kind of team. They're not going to have this kind of firepower. Yeah. I, they just won't. I feel like uh, people describing Purdue, you know, it's – and expecting certain things, like you mentioned with the defense, especially was very similar to when you're, whenever you hear a broadcast from Michigan say, well, you got it. You know, these guys rebounded at elite level, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that wasn't our team this year. We just didn't, we, you know, we have in the past, right. And you could argue that was one of the biggest problems when you look for defensively, et cetera. And, and that it kneecaps you. Yeah. That's exactly the point I was trying to make at the beginning of the discussion here is that, you know, Iowa got ID'd correctly last year as an incredible offensive team who couldn't guard their shadow, and that was going to be a fatal flaw. That's what I maintained all year long, and a lot of other people did too, and that's what happened. Purdue, despite all the facts making it obvious that they were exactly the same thing, they never got held to that same level of account. And it's because of the bias toward, well, we know – Purdue traditionally defends well. We know Matt Painter defends well. We know this team defended well the year prior. I get, at least for a while, as I say, giving some, some leeway and figuring, okay, small sample size, they're going to figure it out. But by the time we got to January, like mid-January at least, it was pretty obvious that this is who they are this year for whatever reason or reasons. And uh, it wasn't likely to change. I think the only thing they could have hoped for is that that they would have a um, a March revelatory moment, and you know they're on the road to Damascus, and the god of defense starts speaking to them, <laughs> and and they figure it out in the short term, and that has happened on occasion. There have been teams. I think about. Um, I feel like Duke teams do Michigan's that often where they don't team, play good defense. And they get to the tournament yes, and they kind of turn it up. Yes. That's a good one. Um, Michigan, uh, Beeline's first team that went to the national title game in, in 2013 
had that kind of year where they were really bad defensively all year long, brilliant offensively, really bad defensively. And then in the tournament, they weren't a defensive juggernaut, but they started guarding people. You know, so it does happen. I understand why if you were a Purdue fan, you would hold out that small note of optimism, but the, the numbers were telling you it wasn't likely. And and that's what we saw. Yeah, and then moving on to teams, I, I don't know that is anything you want to comment about Illinois, because I think they kind of were a little bit sort of how you predicted. And uh, they ended up they ended up winning the Big Ten, unlike last year where they they would argue, my friend is an Illinois fan, they got jobbed, right? Because they weren't able to play Michigan in one of those games right. and lost by half game. But And I'm, simp- I'm, simp- oh, I'm, I'm sympathetic, sympathetic to that, that argument too. I way. think it's a reasonable argument, but it's a weird year and whatever, you know. So um, yeah. so I, I don't know. I don't really, do you, unless there's something you want to comment about Illinois, I don't think there's a whole lot. Oh, there. I do. Okay, go ahead. I do. I, I've got some, th- I got some things to say. Um, that is a team that, in my view, um, had every reason to achieve more than they did and didn't mostly you could argue two factors. One was not under their control. And that was, they had some injury problems where um, what's the kid's name? Grandison who became a really, and I had said about him, the question is, can he remain as efficient if his role increases? Cause he had shot the ball very well the year prior in a more limited role. This year, when he emerged as a starting foreman, he was really good, really good. And he had he was banged up. He had some injuries late in the year. That hurt them. Um, so that was out of their control. But the thing that was within their control, I will maintain to my dying day that Andre Curbelo was the worst hype player I've ever seen in the Big Ten, bar none. I can think of no one worse. The one thing he does exceptionally well is, and I will grant this, is he's the most creative passer in the country. That sounds great. But the problem is, if that's your mindset, to try to make 99th percentile plays all the time, you're going to have problems. And he did. He was, I didn't understand the hype on him at this in the preseason anyway. And I, and I called it out. You know, I had said he's a wonderfully creative point guard, but that creativity sometimes gets ahead of good judgment. 129 assists as a freshman, but 80 turnovers. He also struggled shooting the ball from range. He shot 16% from three as a freshman. So with those numbers in mind, there was all this talk about Illinois as guard you, which was a Brad Underwood thing that when I, some of the talk that I'll give them credit, they actually want to share the Big Ten, which is a little better than I thought they would do. Um, but they once again failed to have any kind of real March statement in the tournament. Um, they flamed out of the Big Ten tournament, so they didn't even get that, which they won the year before. And I, I was not surprised by any of it because there was so much talk coming out of that program in the preseason and during the season, every time Brad Underwood was opening his mouth, I was finding myself thinking, this is not what a coach who is secure and believes in his program sets. And it went on over and over and over. It struck me as chest beating talk, which we don't get in the big 10 very much. That's obviously the antithesis of Tom is right. John Beeline never engaged in that stuff. Bo Ryan never did. You don't hear it out of Purdue. 
You never heard it out of Thad Mata when he was at Ohio State. That's just not the nature of this league. It's that Midwest. Is for, for, for great, right. For great programs, all of which, all those programs I mentioned at one point or another had great runs. Um, chest beating is just not something you do. And Brad Underwood just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And his players were doing it. And I just, I heard all that. And I said, this thing is going to go up in flames. And the fact that they were able to achieve as much as they did, I give a massive amount of credit to their veterans. Trent Frazier, I thought while he had the ball in his hands, which I'm going to get back to in a second, was as good a point guard as there was in the Big Ten and was a huge factor in Illinois succeeding to the level they did. People will talk about Kofi Coburn, and I get it, but Trent Frazier was the most important guy on that team. I mentioned Grandison, hugely important. Um, The kid Plummer that they brought in from Utah was a massive addition as a shooter, replacing Adam Miller, who they lost in a surprise transfer to LSU. So they're veterans really overrode some of the nonsense that I saw coming from that program. But I get back to Curbelo. To me, Curbelo had a weird year. You know, he had a concussion where he missed a bunch of games. And then um, he had some other ailments. I think he had a flu for a period that took him out. But even when he was healthy, before the concussion and definitely after, I just looked at it and thought, this team – gets worse every single time he's on the floor. And the statistics buttress that argument, by the way. If you look at it, they were worse with him on the floor, clearly. And and you didn't even have to look at the stats. This was a case where I think the eye test told you what you needed. When, when they were playing without him, and it was clearly Trent Frazier's team, he was running it, the ball was in his hands, that team was dangerous, really dangerous. And when Curbelo came back in with the terrible shot selection, the terrible, terrible decisions. And by the way, somehow Brad Underwood has decided, because I've heard him say it a few times, that Curbelo is a great defensive player. He, he was the worst defensive player on that team by a mile. He was terrible. So every area of the game, except the fact that he can occasionally make a home run play as a passer, occasionally, every other area of the game he checked out as a massive negative. And while he wasn't the only reason they didn't go further in the tournament, he was a big reason. And I maintain he was a big reason they didn't win the Big Ten outright over Wisconsin because with Purdue's defensive problems, the opportunity was there. Illinois was a much more balanced team overall than Purdue. It was there for them to win it outright, and they didn't. And I think Brad Underwood choosing to play Curbelo and to force that and force it and force it was such a bad decision that it makes me skeptical as to how great that program can become. I don't doubt that they, he's recruiting well. I don't doubt that Illinois will be a factor at the top of the Big Ten more often than not going forward. But are they going to ever be a Michigan State, an Ohio State under Mata, a beeline under Michigan, even a late-stage Bo Ryan where they're actually a team in the national conversation for real. I got to see it. I'm, I'm i I'm from Missouri on that one Be, because of this year. That's, this is the year that Brad Underwood to me absolutely buried his reputation as a guy who has any clue 
as to what you need to do to get your program from, from good or very good to something beyond that, which is what you need to be if you want to get the final fours and contend for national titles. I mean, that was your contention after listening to his comments after the Big Ten tournament, right? He went in and he started talking about, well, yes. we didn't really yes. care that much. You know, That's was, another example. We got other stuff, right? And so that so that that just further, you know, to your point, that just kind of further buttresses your point that if, Underwood's not serious. Here's the thing. Lots of coaches may actually believe that, depending upon what they're going through in a given year. You know, each situation is contextual. If you've got a team that's a little banged up and you think, man, these guys would benefit more from an extra couple of days of rest so I can get them healthy for next Thursday or next Friday's first round game. I get that. That's a totally legitimate way to feel. But what you don't do is you don't go saying it. You don't ever say that. And and the fact that he did, and I, I actually watched the, the interview where he said it and he was serious. And I just thought this guy has no understanding at all. None. So if you're in Illinois fans, I'm sure have no reason to be listening to this, but if you're friendly with Illinois fans, they, they are going to, in my mind, something's got to give, something's got to change. Brad Underwood needs to get religion somehow. And I don't know how it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, they've, um, they've been because... in the this for a while, right? And so I think probably fans are going to yeah. give him a lot of rope at this point just because, yeah, they've been pretty bad for, yes, for a long time. Made them, he's made them relevant in the league again. And he is he is recruiting well, but, you know, look, he may, he may get lucky and he may get the right combination of players, kind of as he had this year when Curbelo was hurt. That thing was humming. Yeah. You know, and if they've been able to stick with that, and, and if, if Grandison had stayed healthy, well, maybe, maybe it comes together and they go on a run in March and they win the Big Ten outright. But the fact that he made the decisions that he made, he said the things he said, it makes me skeptical of the whole thing at the highest level. Yeah. Well, and f- so it, it, I also felt like with Curbelo, just to go back there just briefly, I, I felt like his passing, he reminded me a lot of Travion Williams, where you have these guys who look have really created passes, but, you know, into the, to the hot dog vendor or something, you know, the seventh row and, and Williams would, wow. Williams really hurt them too. I think with his passing now it's a different position. And, and I felt like at least at the big 10 tournament, it was all, it was either great pass from Williams or it was like a terrible, a turnover. And he was like a, he was a, he was a liability at times for that team, but let's move on to everyone's. Uh, well, I, I just want to, I just want to, you want to counter that before we go further with that. Travion Williams, on the year, three assists per game, 2.1 turnovers per game. If you have a plus assist to turnover margin as a big man at all, you are sensational. Okay. A one and a half to one ratio, pretty good. I just want to look before we move on at Andre Curbelo. I'm a Trevion. I was influenced a, by the Purdue fans who are sitting next to me. <laughs> they're, they're They're high. I think Travion Williams, I love Travion Williams. I loved him in high school. Uh, yeah, I do too. Um, I, I just thought um, he would have been so great at Michigan State, which is where I think he originally wanted to come. Um, Andre Curbelo, 3.2 assists per game, 2.8 turnovers. So a worse ratio than a center. Worse than a center. <laughs> Granted, a great passing center, but still a center. That, that yeah. ratio... You should never be handed the keys to an offense again after that kind of ratio. Two years running, by the way, although he was better as a freshman. That's the thing. For as bad as he was this year, um, it was worse this year than he was as a freshman where I still thought he struggled. 
he had 4.2 assists, yeah. 2.6 turnovers a game as a freshman. So, yeah, and uh, the three-point shooting did improve this year. He went from 16% to 18%. So, I, I knew that was going to be a sarcastic comment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good luck, St. John's. Good luck. Let's... <laughs> Well, let's move to your second, your uh, least favorite team. Your your, le- your your second least favorite team is Iowa. Your least favorite team yeah. is, of course, the guys down the road, fifteen miles away in Ann Arbor. They were much worse than I know you. You didn't believe in them, but they were much worse than you had predicted. And so, let's just kind of break down what happened to Michigan this yeah. year. Besides Juwan Howard hitting well, some, a I coach. can. I, well, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I can tell you. I think I think the single biggest thing to me is that um, although he got, I will admit, he got better as the year went along, Devontae Jones never solved their point guard problem completely the way Mike Smith did. Mike Smith was a note-perfect addition for that team a year prior. He was a a high-volume scorer who wasn't that efficient of a player at Columbia. He comes to Michigan and somehow becomes an incredibly efficient shooter in much lower volume and a very steady hand at the point. That's exactly what this team needed. They didn't get it from Devontae Jones. Caleb Houston was supposed to be a big-time offensive player, a great shooter as a freshman on the wing. He got better late in the year, but by no means did he meet anyone's expectations of him. You know, there's, there's no question there. This team didn't shoot well. Uh, it took them a while to figure out that the best option that they had offensively was to truly play through Hunter Dickinson. Once they started doing that, they, they got better late in the year. They also improved a little bit as time went on defensively, but this was just a flawed team. And, and I think, you know, the fact that they had Diabate and Dickinson out there together starting that can produce good moments in games, but in the modern, in the modern uh, sport, of basketball, I think it's hard to win with two true big men out there simultaneously, defensively, especially. I think it's just hard. And, you know, and especially when one of them, Dickinson, just really, really struggles to get out and guard anybody away from the rim. You know, the year prior, they got away with that because they had a veteran group. You had Smith, you had Franz Wagner. You had Isaiah Livers, you had all these guys, and, and Chaundi Brown as the sixth man, all these veterans who understood how to defend. And it made it okay that they had a terrible individual defender in Dickinson. They were able to, to get past that and still be a really good defensive team overall. This year's team got better as the year went on, but they never got close to that level overall. And so those are the things that I think made the difference. You know, if you if you look at um if you look at Dickinson's season, it was it was a good year statistically. I mean, you know, he he was efficient. He added a passable three point shot to his repertoire, um, mm-hmm. which was a development. Um, proved to be a very good passer, as I say. I think they got better when they started playing through him more often. But um, you know, he comes he comes with some limitations on the defensive end. And he just, as we're recording this, he just announced he's not entering the draft. So he's coming back. It's going to continue to be a problem for Michigan. The only question is going to be, can they do more of what they did the year, his freshman year to mitigate it? Because that's not going away. He's never going to be a capable defender. I can't see how that could happen. 
um, because he's just never going to magically develop better footwork and better speed. It's just not going to, it's not in the cards. Um, But, you know, uh, those were the reasons why I think they were disappointing. I'm ashamed of myself because although I was leading the band on the idea that there's no way Michigan should be the preseason favorite, I didn't ding them enough. I still picked them second. And, and I knew that there were, I mean, I want to go with what my, to look at what my, my summary was here. Um, yeah. M is seen by a lot of people nationally as the big 10 favorite, but not for me, just too much in the way of personnel changes when one compares them for Purdue for me to pick them to win it again. However, there are some reasons to think they can contend for the title and maybe even push for a final four. Um, I mentioned Dickinson. I mentioned Eli Brooks, who you know, had a good year, but never elevated his game, which wasn't a total shocker that he didn't, you know, he kind of is yeah. what he is. Um, and I mentioned they didn't, I said, the key to me is Jones. He has to be as advertised for Michigan to contend because beyond him, you have a returning who doesn't look like he can cut it. Jackson, that proved to be true. He transferred out and a freshman who probably isn't ready for a full-time job as a starter just yet. Collins, that was also true. Um, so I think that was the biggest thing. Well, and, the, and I think this is a good, good way to transition then to the other part of the discussion, which I don't hear many people talk about, well, at least in Big Ten circles. Let's talk about the Big Ten, because what, in basketball, what defines your conference, defines your team, certainly Izzo has really pushed that, is how you perform in the postseason in, in, when it comes to the NCAA tournament. The, the Big Ten got in an unprecedented amount of teams this year. There's a lot of talk about, well, this better be the year they do it, et cetera, et cetera. They've got a lot of teams that could score a lot. We saw, you know, Iowa came in hot. Purdue, of course, was Purdue. Illinois looked pretty tough. And, I mean, to go back to Michigan, Michigan is made a, the Sweet 16, which they made five straight, which is a, quite an accomplishment. Yet, really, no one in the Big Ten performed well. I mean, you could you could say, well, you know, a lot of teams sort of performed what their their seeding would say. So, like, you would expect yes. Mich- you wouldn't expect Michigan State to make the Sweet 16 because they were a seven seed, right? Now, you wouldn't expect Indiana or or Rutgers or, but you would expect Iowa to make it. You'd expect Illinois, Purdue. Uh, and yet those in Wisconsin and, you know, those teams large part, except for Purdue didn't, didn't make it, didn't make it through. It's been two, it's been two straight poor performances by the league in terms of how, and you touch on why I don't think this year was quite as bad as the popular narrative had it, because in many of those games, the big 10 team was actually an underdog, you know, um, in the first weekend, that was definitely the case. There weren't a lot of, I, I, I want to say, um, Michigan. We looked at it during the tournament. The, yeah. Michigan spun a couple that, of that Most of the teams that lost, yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. But, but yeah, it was, this is the, people get confused by the number of teams that a league gets in the field. And that really isn't the best barometer of what you would expect that league to do in the tournament, right? It's the number of highly seeded teams you have. And the Big Ten was an example of a league that was very deep. And by the way, I maintain the big 10 deserved the number of bids they got on the merits. I don't think there's a good argument for that because there was no league in the country that was particularly great this season. There just wasn't Um, big 10 teams did enough to justify that number of bids. But what the big 10 didn't have is what we've come to expect out of a league more often than not, which is, multiple teams that you look at on selection Sunday and say, yeah, if they get some breaks, 
they got a chance to be standing in the last weekend, right? Didn't have that. I, I think Purdue and Illinois were the two teams that, at least in terms of their talent level and their experience, you could say, well, maybe there's a shot. And Purdue, again, I go back to it. They're gonna they're gonna look back at this and realize what an opportunity they missed because it was there for them. You know, they beat St. Peter's in the Sweet 16 the way you're expecting them to. They're in the Elite Eight and they're one game away. You know, they could have done right, it. Right. Um, but if the discussion is a larger, I, why don't you tell me where you want to take the discussion? I won't argue with. Right. And so looking at the Big Ten, no question, the Big Ten is one of, let's say, the six major conferences in college basketball. You've got the Big East. The Pac-12, whatever it is now, uh, SEC, ACC, Big 12, and the Big 10. are the. I think those are the six major basketball conferences. And the other ones are lessering, you know, A-10, maybe in the Conference USA. But since, two, I mean, Michigan State is the last national championship in 2000. It's been 22 years since the Big 10 has won. And if you look at the final four bursts, uh, I was just looking at, so you've got, you have 14 bursts in the final four for the big 10 since Michigan state won it in 2000. Now Michigan state occupies a bunch of those big ten, uh, final four bursts. Yeah. They've had four teams that have been in the finals since then, both in 05 for Michigan state, 13 for Michigan in 15, Wisconsin, and in 18, uh, Michigan again. Uh, and Indiana, course, you know, Indiana as well in 2002. Oh, right. There you go. And, um, so that's like a 17% of the bursts, final four, final four participants were big 10 teams out of, you know, 21 out of 84. Uh, and so that's, which is actually about what you'd expect for one out of six, right? It's, I mean, it's about 70%, but why do you think the big 10 struggles so much in winning it? Uh, because we see, you know, Duke wins, Arizona, Kansas. I mean, sort of your typical team is Villanova and they, and they don't all have the same formula for winning. Is it just because of the types of players? Is the type of the league beat you up too much? Is it the, the type of basketballs played in the Big Ten is the wrong one to be successful in the NCAA tournament to go all the way to the, to the end? What do you think it is? It just Or is it just dumb luck? I think it's dumb luck. And I know people don't want to hear that. They want <laughs> But really, the yeah. Big Ten, you mentioned five times. So 25%, no, close to 20% of of the opportunities give or take um they've had a team in the finals i would argue that when you look at those teams so let's look at the national runners up michigan in 2018 against villanova villanova was a very good team but that that was a year that you know you could say well maybe the big 10 had a shot because i don't think i don't think that villanova team was um I don't think it was as good as the one that won it two years prior to that. I think they were a little more vulnerable. Um, But some of the other ones, uh, Wisconsin in 2015 loses to Duke. That was a great Wisconsin team. And I think they stood toe-to-toe with Duke and could have beaten them and maybe deserved to, but didn't. So you'd say, okay, that's a missed opportunity, but that was a great opponent. So um, Michigan in 2013 losing to Louisville. Uh, that there was an opportunity there. I don't think that was an unbeatable Louisville team by any means. Um, but then you get into some of these others, you know, Michigan state losing in 09 uh, to North Carolina, that North Carolina team was an all time great team in my mind that I, 
I don't think gets the respect it's due. It's one of the, I would say, wire to wire. My personal belief is you have to go back to the early 90s UNLV teams to find as dominant a team as North Carolina was that season. I think they were that good and they don't, and they don't get seen in quite that way. And I'm not sure why, because they were just tremendous from beginning to end. Michigan state could play that team 10 times and they probably weren't winning any. And Michigan state was great. Yeah, that right. year. Michigan state was great. The majority of years that Michigan state team was national championship caliber. Absolutely. Just not that year. They had bad luck. Ohio State, a few years prior to that, two years prior to that, no seven, a great Ohio State team with Greg Oden and Mike Conley, all those guys. Frankly, for a team that was freshman driven, far, far better than the Fab Five, in my opinion, because the Fab Five never actually won a league championship. That Ohio State team won the Big Ten, in addition to getting to the national yeah. title game. And it was it as freshman driven as that Fab Five group was. Um, they had the misfortune to run into the second of the consecutive Florida championships. And that Florida team was another all-time great team. Bad luck. Um, you look at Illinois in 05 against North Carolina, another great North Carolina team. Opportunity was there, but can you feel like they really blew it? No, those were two evenly matched teams. Um, and Indiana losing to Maryland in 02, that Indiana team was, was kind of a, you know, they were only a five seed. So it was a tremendous story that they got there um, against a very, very good Maryland team, probably the best Maryland team in history. So I don't know. Some of those I think are, are just misfortune that you happen to have a team that was great in a year where there happened to be an all time great team that happened two or three times. Um the Big Ten is right there with the A-10, or I'm sorry, with the Atlantic Coast Conference in terms of Final Four participants since Michigan State won its last title. Um, that to me is, and of course, I'm arguing from a Big Ten perspective, but I do think if you're looking for an indicator as to the strength of the conference, what we're really talking about or what we should be talking about, in my view, is opportunities to legitimately contend for national championships. Are you able to do that consistently? I think that's the measure of what makes Michigan state an elite program is that far more often than not, we come into a season and we go into the national or into the NCAA tournament, believing that Michigan state has an opportunity, whether they do so or not is another issue, but they have an opportunity. They're good enough to be in the conversation. And I would argue that the Big Ten, as much as any league, has teams that over that whole period have been in the national title conversation, which by definition, if you're in the final four, you're in that conversation. So I do think there's just a lot of bad luck. Um, what, what some people will argue, and it's especially over the last 10, 12 years, it gets into a very interesting picture. Some people will argue that recruiting rankings for Big Ten schools have not been at the same level as, say, what Duke is able to do historically or what Kentucky has done historically. And that's true. You know, for I'm always amazed when people kind of bag on, or bag maybe strong, but kind of um, 
seem to think that Tom Izzo is some kind of mediocre recruiter. Tom Izzo has been a sensational recruiter by any measure, including recruiting class rankings. It's just he hasn't had those super classes. He hasn't had the closest he, he ever had to it was the, the 2016 group, which, by the way, did eventually produce a final four and might have produced two if we hadn't had COVID. But, you know, other than that, you know, early, like first four or five years, Thad Mata was at Ohio State. They were kind of in there with anybody nationally in recruiting. But other than that, the Big Ten admittedly has not had anyone consistently in that top five range. Now, the question you ought to be asking after that is, okay, does that equate? Because this is what people lean on. Is it, well, the Big Ten's not landing, you know, top 10, top 20 players at the same rate as some of these other leagues. Are the teams that are doing that any more successful on a regular basis than the best Big Ten teams are at getting to Final Fours or even winning national championships? The last 12 years or so, we have seen Kentucky and Duke go on a one-two run in recruiting rankings that has been unprecedented in the sport since John Wooden. It's, it's one or the other that's at the top, and the other one's usually second for about 12 years running. How many titles have those two schools won combined over that 12-year period? The answer is two. Kentucky won one, Duke won one. That's it. And by the way, they haven't exactly been reining up regular Final Four appearances either. Now, Duke got to one this year, but Duke has had since 2010, which we'll say is about the start of their one-and-done period, 2011, Duke has been in two Final Fours. Kentucky has been in one, two, three, four. Kentucky's been in four. Not bad for Kentucky, but one title with all the hype year after year after year. Meanwhile, over that period, we look at who's actually won. Villanova has won two titles with veteran teams that recruited well, but not at another worldly rate. The talent level as measured by recruiting rankings that Jay Wright had on those teams is very, very comparable to what Tom Mezzo has typically had. Very comparable. Virginia won a title in 2019. Tony Bennett's never torn it up on the recruiting trails. He's recruited well, but not getting a ton of McDonald's All-Americans or superstars. Baylor won it last year. I mean... Not many high school All-Americans to be found on that roster. They had more of them this year yeah. than, the, than the title team. North Carolina won a title in 2017 with a team that by Carolina standards traditionally was not particularly talent-laden. You know, that team was good, certainly, but they didn't have the Duke or Kentucky kind of recruiting classes because if you remember – They were under the specter of NCAA investigation around their academic scandal at that time. UConn wins it in 14 with a team that was a seven seed. They weren't loaded with talent. Um, You know, so I can go on and on and on. So I'm not sure that that's, that's the thing that a lot of people want to point to. I'm not sure that that tells us very much either. To me, the answer is, if you keep putting teams into final fours, eventually somebody's going to break through and win one. Now, 
there's no question the last 20 sure. years is a disappointment in that sense. Um, you know, Michigan State won that title in 2000. I'm trying to recall, nobody won a title in the league in the 90s. If I remember correctly, I mean, they had teams get to get to the final four. Certainly Michigan did it a couple of times. Michigan state did it once. Um, Indiana, I believe did it once. Ohio state did it once. So they, they had several teams get there, but not win it in the eighties. You had multiple championships. That's really how far back you have to go. Michigan won it in 89, Indiana won it in 87 and 81. And I think that's it. So I think it's three titles in the eighties. And then in the seventies, um, you know, Indiana won one, Michigan State won one, and I think that's it. So I think they had two. So it's not really outside of the normal way of things. It's a little bit outside of it, but not as drastic as maybe some might have you believe. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just where I where I land for the league is largely where I land for Michigan State. If you want to say that not winning national titles makes you a failure, well, I guess Tom Izzo has only not been a failure once. But, I mean, what <laughs> rational person defines success that way? That's insane. I mean, I know yeah, there are well, I know there can... are crazies out there, but they're crazy for a reason. They get labeled that way for a reason because they're insane. Do, do you think, though, that at least the last, the last few years, we have seen unprecedented difference of basketball in big 10, in the sense we have a lot of really big players like, yeah, yeah. you know, players that are in the nineties, you wouldn't have thought anything of it, but now the, as the game has changed some, we're starting to see, yeah. you know, Luca Garza, uh, Hunter Dickinson, Kofi Coburn, these kind these sorts of players. Is, is that holding back the big 10? Do you think when it comes to the NCAA tournament, are they more vulnerable? I mean, they seem to be successful in the non-conference season. So you'd say, well, it doesn't seem to matter, but it, is it just, it's a, it's an interest or again, is this just random chance? No, it's an, it's an interesting point because if you look at these teams, so this year you look at Purdue and Illinois were probably the two best teams, right? And they both had that issue the year prior, Michigan, um, Iowa and Illinois were the three best teams. They all had that problem. Um, I, I think it's kind of fluky in terms of how many of them there have been. Um, but if that continues and I'm not convinced that it will, but if that were to continue, then yeah, I would say that poses a problem. And the biggest reason is it really limits you defensively. I mean, if you look at, if you look at those two teams, um, this year, for example, Purdue and Illinois were both very, very vulnerable in terms of pick and roll defense. You know, if you've got a, you can have a seven footer who can can play pick and roll defense adequately. You know, Marcus Bingham actually got to be pretty decent as a pick and roll defender this year. Um, so it's not that, oh, you can't win with a seven-footer. But, you know, it's, it's harder if that guy is immobile and he can't move because it limits, it limits your options, in my view, defensively. I think the main reason that I was so convinced that Michigan State was the favorite to win it in 2020 was they had the ultimate nullifier in pick and roll defense in Xavier Tillman. He had become so good and he was so good the year prior, but I mean, he had gone up another level still. If you remember how 
he could he could extend out on the floor and guard anybody one through five. But even in the post, I just remember there was a sequence. I, I went back at some point last year and rewatched it. Just I think I came across it randomly and I watched it again. Uh, there was a sequence that year when Iowa came into the Breslin. And they get the ball to Luca Garza on the blocks against him. Garza's backing him down and backing him down. And eventually, X kind of semi-ties him up, and the ball goes off Garza out of bounds, and X just goes crazy. But it, it was the moment he broke Luca Garza, and he could do that against guys. And that's I do think that kind of player, um, you need that kind of guy if you're going to give you, you want to give yourself the best shot at winning it. Um, you know, Kansas really didn't necessarily have that. McCormick wasn't that, but I look at Baylor. Um, I look at Virginia. I look at the Villanova teams in recent years. They've had more mobile guys. They haven't typically had the seven foot aircraft carrier type. And I, I think, I think it's hard. I think it's hard defensively, offensively, you can do a lot with those guys, you know, and that's why those teams have typically been really effective in the big 10 is because over over enough games, you're going to be able to win that offense-defense battle enough. But in the NCAA tournament, it, it's a one-and-done format, so you only have to get got once. And you're also playing better teams the further you go. So, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's but, – but I don't think it's by design. I don't think all these coaches have suddenly decided, man, i got to get a seven foot, 300 pound guy <laughs> other than Matt Painter. That is how Matt Painter wants to play. That is a thing yeah. he does. But other than that, like, I don't expect Illinois to go out. I mean, how many Kofi Coburn's are there in the universe anyway, but I don't He's got a younger brother. Does he? Okay. Well, maybe yeah. we'll see it again, but um, <laughs> so I've heard, <laughs> but uh, I don't expect them to just be loading up on Kofi facsimiles at Michigan. I don't, I don't necessarily expect them to be loading up on Hunter Dickinson types going forward. Although, you know, Juwan Howard is certainly more fond of uh, big men than his predecessor was traditional big men. So it remains to be seen. Yeah. You know, um, I don't think Iowa's got any Garza's in the pipeline. You know, it's just kind of a, a coincidence that so many of those guys ended up in the league around the same time, in my opinion. Yeah. But, yeah. And that's entirely possible. Right. I think, and I think to your point, one point, it is important to recognize that you may tear people apart in the regular season because you are playing flawed teams and they have, you know, right. you may have a problem defensively that your guy can't get out there, but maybe they can't exploit it. Or, you know, maybe they have two other problems that, that you can overcome with your deficiencies. But by the time you get to the NC tournament, theoretically, the, the competition stiffens, the flaws, the flawed teams disappear and you have yep. the teams that are you know, more complete that you have to contend with and they're more likely to be able to exploit your efficiency. Exactly right. Yeah. I think that's really it. Again, in the, even in a league as deep as the big 10, you're going to play enough flawed teams and God knows there were plenty of flaws to go around the conference this year, but you're going to play enough flawed teams that if you've got a weapon like that, that can just win it at one end to that level, as some of those guys can, you're still going to win a lot of games, but when the competition goes up a notch or two or three, it's going to get harder to, to win those battles where you're giving away so much at one end. Okay. Well, why don't we wrap it up there? Thanks so much, Rod, for allowing us to critique your predictions from last season. We'll do it again next year and see if you can break your record of 43. I also like to thank everyone listening. You can send us emails at 
tffinots at gmail.com if you have any questions, show ideas, etc. If you've not yet already done so, make sure you subscribe to the show, share it with your friends and family, and leave us a five-star review and written review is always greatly appreciated and tells how we're doing the show. Until next time, the final four is not in the schedule. Go green. At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.